Before we get into the show, here's a quick message from MR Insurance, a small business that helps physicians with their disability insurance needs. Michael Rielvas is a CFP professional and insurance agent committed to helping physicians nationwide with their term life and disability insurance needs. He makes an objective, transparent, and education-focused process that aims to help physicians make prudent decisions and avoid overcomplicating things. He exclusively offers own occupation disability insurance policies for residents, fellows, and attending physicians, and who does not need that? Everybody needs that. Michael has your best interest at heart when it comes to disability insurance. We know he'd be happy to help you address your needs. You can find Michael at drpodcastnetwork.com slash mrinsurance or contact him at 800-817-4522. So welcome to the Medical Liability Minute. I'm your host, Jeff Siegel. I'm the founder and CEO of Medical Justice, and I am excited today to be interviewing Don Robinson. Don Robinson retired from the FBI in 2015 after 23 years of service. During his career, he specialized in counterterrorism, organized crime, and narcotics investigation. Sounds like a day at the office in healthcare. (laughs) He also served as a regional program coordinator for FBI domestic terrorism, civil rights, and organized crime programs in a tri-state area. Served as the FBI's legal attache in Moscow, Russia. So what did he do? He was a crisis and hostage negotiator for most of his career and has been certified as a law enforcement instructor in multiple states. When he retired, he began a second career in behavioral health. He established one of the first behavioral health crisis centers in Idaho and served as manager of behavioral health crisis intervention services in a large community hospital uh, in Idaho. Here he oversaw the daily operations of this crisis center and eternal clinical violence prevention program. We'll talk about that. And he's a threat manager for the organization. In terms of his skill set, he's a recognized expert in the field of crisis negotiation, behavioral threat assessment and management, as well as verbal de escalation and workplace violent uh, prevention. He's currently founder and principal consultant for Clinical Security Solutions, a security risk management consulting firm specializing in behavioral threat assessment and management, workplace violence prevention, related training and curriculum development. This is quite a CV. Uh, Don, welcome, and thanks for joining us today. Oh, thanks. Yeah, one day I'll actually decide what I want to do when I grow up and uh, zero in on one of those. Um, and that's what I keep telling my mom. <laughs> so it's the same thing trying to figure out what we want to do with our lives. But I think what's what's fascinating is the career tra- uh, trajectory that you've had and how you ultimately moved into healthcare. So let me let me pull out some bullet points here, no pun intended. So mm-hmm. FBI domestic terrorism, civil rights and organized crime programs, FBI's legal attache in Moscow, Russia, and crisis hostage negotiator into healthcare. Walk us through that, please. <laughs> I, I get that question asked a lot, and I always say that there's kind of a built-in joke there of uh, uh, translating from uh, FBI to uh, to mental health. Uh, you know, 23 years of dealing with Washington, D.C., I'm an expert in emotionally disturbed people. It's, uh, you know, regardless of where you fall on the spectrum, 
there's usually always some laughs there. But uh, the, the reality of it is, if, if you look at that career path, I've, I've kind of made a career out of people being angry at me. And uh, um, the, there's a big myth there. Uh, and I, I know this will shock people that, that uh, um, the difference between Hollywood and reality, it's actually not the same. But uh, when you look at the movies and you see hostage negotiators, crisis negotiators, you think of the, the bank robbery gone bad, dog day afternoon and hostages inside the store. And, and a bullhorn. There's always a bullhorn involved. Right? Always a bullhorn. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I actually have a funny story about a bullhorn. But um, so the, but the reality is that that's about four percent of what law enforcement negotiators do. There was a, uh, it was actually an FBI trained negotiator for the New York Police Department who did his master's thesis on what crisis negotiation looked like in law enforcement. And and he looked at, I, I think it was like a 10 year data set of what the call outs were, what we went on. 96% of the calls had some kind of mental health component to it, whether it was a suicide intervention or, 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 or some other mental health component to those calls. And that's, that's the bulk of, of that work. So hang on for a second. That, Let's mm-hmm. pause to digest that for just a minute. You're suggesting that the vast majority of these types of calls, the calls that you um, worked on or with in terms of uh, the FBI, um, had some component of mental health creating a crisis. Is that a fair statement? It is, but I guess there's there's always an asterisk or a caveat to that. Um, my my experience was a little unique. When you think about FBI negotiators and what FBI jurisdiction is, right? It's limited to, uh, um, uh, you know, those violations that the FBI has uh, right. jurisdiction for. The bulk of my field time was in San Diego, California. And, you know, recognizing that that negotiation, verbal de-escalation, those are all soft skills. Those are all perishable skills. And uh, instead of waiting for the big Waco or waiting for that federal prison riot where you're going to call in the FBI negotiators, we really had the benefit in San Diego. We had a very forward thinking team leader for our negotiation team, and he worked out a deal with the San Diego Police Department. And recognizing that we needed this live practice to stay current, uh, we were uh, embedded with the San Diego Police Department's um, negotiation team. So we would respond to a lot of different incidents that uh, weren't necessarily FBI um, jurisdiction, but we got the benefit of working on that team um, and, and it really worked well. So so in that sense, uh, a lot of my call outs were more traditional law enforcement call outs than uh, strictly related to FBI jurisdiction because it is fairly limited. I mean, when people think of hostage negotiation, we generally think of these high profile events, maybe a mass casualty shooting, something that makes headlines. I mean, if it bleeds, it leads. Mm-hmm. Um, but then those are probably not particularly common events. Uh, those are the ones that are newsworthy events. But the bigger problem almost certainly are the one offs, the one offs where you have one on one escalating conflict with the mm-hmm. potential for violence or, may, or maybe even the beginning of violence. And those are no less challenging, I, w- I would argue. No, the, 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 they're very challenging. And there was, um, and of course, you know, I'm dating myself, but this goes back to the early 90s when I started doing this. Um, and, and, and there's been a lot of uh, a procedural and doctrinal change in law enforcement. And, and uh, in those early days, uh, things were siloed as they tend to be in, in all industries, right? Where, where now um, 
um, you know, you had the tactical SWAT people and you had the negotiation. Uh, it's much more blended now. And and I, I, I really uh, give a lot of credit to San Diego. I think they were very forward thinking in the 90s of already embedding mental health professionals with patrol officers. We had a, a, a clinical psychologist on contract to the team that was our mental health advisor. Um, and, and that was critical on some of these calls. So yeah, a lot of the calls were those one-offs. Maybe you have a, a domestic violence standoff where the abuser has uh, and their victim are barricaded in the house. We, we resolved that through crisis negotiation. We resolved that through talking. Uh, suicide intervention uh, spent many, many a night and early morning on top of the Coronado Bay Bridge doing suicide intervention. So um, when you look at it that way, and this is the reality versus the Hollywood myth, uh, my segue into community crisis-based mental health maybe wasn't that unusual um, uh, at the time. I, I remember being recently retired from the FBI looking looking for that next hill to climb, and, and I saw the posting for this job. And I, as I'm reading through it, I'm thinking, I think I can do this. Um, the other thing they wanted was strong law enforcement contact. So I had already built those relationships as the FBI supervisor in our town. Well, you talked about a strong hill to climb. that, And then you mentioned Coronado Bay Bridge. It brought back some old memories because my first job as a neurosurgeon was in San Diego. And one of the hospitals I had privileges in was in the tiny, at the time it was a very tiny, Coronado Hospital. I was working at multiple hospitals, the largest one being Sharp Memorial Hospital. Mm -hmm. So I was there for three years, and you definitely brought back some memories, and certainly some memories where um, we came into contact in the workplace with patients who were at high risk and indeed uh, were violent. And they weren't just at risk for violent, they became violent. So early on in my career, I certainly be, uh, was exposed to the concept of workplace violence. So segue into your next job, your next role as it related to healthcare. You described what the job description was, or at least what they were looking for. How did how did you connect to them, and what was that? What did you do? Mm -hmm. We were uh, uh, basically charged with setting up one of the first behavioral health crisis centers here in Idaho, and and the idea being that there's this gap right? Um, somebody who has an acute mental health need uh, can go to an emergency department. They can then that's that 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 intake point for that inpatient care, that higher level of psychiatric care. Um, but there's a lot of people that don't quite need that high level of care. Maybe somebody with an anxiety disorder or some mild suicidal ideation um, needs that safe place to go. And, and, and that was the concept behind these behavioral health crisis centers. So they were looking for somebody to set one of those up. Um, I had been involved in some other startup projects, creating task forces in law enforcement. Um, so I had some familiarity with, with, with setting something up, but also needed that strong community contact because we had law enforcement, social service providers out in the community. And uh, ha having just returned from, from two and a half years in Russia, um, I came back into the, the community I, I came from. So I still knew a lot of the law enforcement contacts there. In fact, they were some of the bigger advocates for the hospital to to really, uh, I, I've got to give the hospital some credit for picking a non-traditional choice to run this. Uh, 
Um, I remember when my uh, appointment to the job was announced in the local newspaper, there was one of those online commentaries uh, that a reader made said, oh, wow, a, a retired FBI agent running a mental health center. What could possibly go wrong? <laughs> and, uh, what could possibly go right? I mean, <laughs> I, I think that it's actually a bold choice, but a smart choice. So tell us what happened. You, you then spent some time. First of all, what was the problem the hospital was trying to solve? Was there an identifiable problem, you know, on a sheet of paper that said, we, we currently are dealing with X, our proposed solution is to implement Y, run. Right. Uh, yeah, there is, is a problem, and, and, and it comes to just saturation of emergency departments. Um, and and there, there's, there's a gap in care. Uh, you know, if, again, if you need that acute high inpatient level of care, the system exists and you can get into that. But there's not a lot of people who maybe are uh, consistently connected with services or maybe they, they had services in the past and they uh, have, have that's lapsed and they don't know how to get reconnected. So hang or on. So when you say um, the system does have um, a mechanism for dealing with high levels of care. Are you referring to if you have, for example, schizophrenia or manic depression, um, there are ways to access care help with inpatient facilities, perhaps even substance abuse. There are very clear pathways to, to get better, if you will, or at least stabilize. But there is a large domain of the other those people Correct. who may have a temporary uh, crisis, perhaps say an acute psychotic break, uh, perhaps uh, acute anxiety, perhaps suicide ideation, and may not qualify for these long-term um, inpatient types of, and they may ultimately be shuttled into them, but near term, it may be a overkill, no pun intended, to, um, to put people into that silo. Is that correct? correct. And, and, and what we were seeing in our emergency department and, and, and our hospital had, so we had a, a youth psychiatric, well, have a, a youth psychiatric unit, an adult psychiatric unit, and an inpatient chemical dependency unit that also uh, treats those comorbid mental health conditions as well as the substance use disorder. So it had a fairly robust behavioral health service line. But what we were seeing in the emergency department were, were those high utilizers of the healthcare system. And people by default would go to the emergency department um, because they didn't know where else to go. And they didn't necessarily need that higher level of care. Um, and it was uh, uh, frankly taking up uh, resources in the emergency department. Uh, and, and we weren't necessarily having good outcomes for those patients because they would come in, they would get screened by the psychiatrist, wouldn't meet criteria for inpatient admission uh, and, and kind of be launched back out into the community. The concept behind the crisis center is especially targeting those high utilizers of the healthcare system. If we can redirect them to this center, uh, the idea being then we, we can do that, that needs assessment. Uh, uh, we have a medical screening, uh, you know, maybe, maybe based on our suicide, we use uh, assessment tools like the Columbia scale for suicidality. And, and if they score high enough on that scale, we need to get them over to the emergency department because they really do need to be evaluated. But a great many of those we were able to divert and we were able to handle in our facility. Sometimes really literally all somebody needed was uh, a place to feel safe. And uh, maybe their anxiety disorder had been ramping up. 
they needed to get reestablished with with uh, with meds. We were able to hook them up with uh, providers in the community that could write that prescription. We were able to actually fill the prescription. Uh, you know, we we would we would pay the copay and we'd go down to the pharmacy and get their medication for them. Um, we would be able to and and just that that safe place of of respite. Um, I could I could give them. Uh, donated clothing and let them take a shower. Let's not un underestimate the psychological value of clean clothes and a shower and, and make that person feel safe. And, and we were very effective at redirecting some of those high utilizers um, from the so emergency. In a sense, you were, you were identifying a crisis and diffusing the crisis using a fairly sizable toolkit. How are, how are these patients coming in? And it sounds like the ER was a point of entry for many of these people. Did they bring the patients there? Were they family members who were frustrated and just said, look, I'm at wit's end. I don't know what to do. Candidly, I'm scared. And I don't have the internal toolkit to keep this person from overpowering me, or he may be a danger to himself or others. Hence, call 911 or whatever goes to the ER. And the before picture was there'd be an acute encounter in the ER, and either they would be um, well, they'd be evaluated and then potentially dismissed as before. It, to, to take this example further, uh, no copay for the medication, no shower, no perhaps one meal, but not, not more than one meal. Or if they believe the patient had ramped up to maximum severity, they'd find a place using traditional infrastructure, but there was no middle zone there to play with. And they And these people could become the repeat offenders, people that our high utilizers keep bouncing back and forth, and everybody kind of knows who they are. Is that mm -hmm. is that correct? That's exactly. And and we had you know specific patients that we actually targeted, and 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 it was more than that. about seventy percent of our patients um, were self-referred, either by family or by themselves. And and we did a very aggressive uh, community marketing campaign. We wanted people to know we were out there, um, and and, and so, so that was very effective. But we got about 20% of our intake directly from law enforcement. And this is where my, my prior association with the, the law enforcement leaders in the community helped. We, we went to uh, a roll call at every patrol shift and said, here's who we are. Here's what we can take. Here's what we are not. We are not an extension of the drunk tank. But, but if you need uh, to bring somebody somewhere to make them safe, we can do that. And, and honestly, 20% uh, of our intakes were law enforcement referrals where a police officer would run into somebody um, with some kind of untreated mental health issue or some kind of behavioral crisis. They did not meet the legal criteria for an involuntary hold. Um, we didn't take involuntary holds. Those still went directly to the emergency department. But uh, law enforcement will tell you there were many times they would encounter somebody on the street um, and they knew they weren't safe, but it didn't meet that that legal standard to to put them on the hold. And they literally didn't know where to take them. And as a result, they would spend more time on the street trying to resolve that call. They were grateful when we came on the scene because now there was a place where they could take somebody. And they would ask them, hey, it, it's voluntary. I can take you someplace where you can get a meal, a shower, and feel safe. Do you want to go? And they would say yes. So law enforcement would bring them to us. I actually – we're, we're – located in Coeur d'Alene, Idaho, we're about 90 miles south of the Canadian border. I had police officers and sheriff deputies from towns right on the border drive that 90 miles to deliver clients to us. 
what you've done, it sounds like you've expanded the toolkit for police, and but you have to educate them at the same time. They need to understand um, what what's available in the toolkit. The bef- and the other thing that would be a challenge to overcome is how do you get the person on the street, for example, to trust a police officer, to know that um, that they have the, I guess, I'll call it the patient, the patient's best interest mm-hmm. at heart, because their prior interaction with law enforcement may not have this rosy outcome. It may have been that they took them to you know, jail or holding cell for a night or they're involuntarily committed. So in a sense, it wasn't just that they, um, they had this tool in their toolkit. They needed to figure out how to use verbal skills to build trust and assist. You know, it's voluntary. Are you going to get in the car or not? It's up to you. If not, you can stay here. But I mean, that. That's a difficult soft skill to teach, but maybe it's not so difficult. Maybe that's what you're trying to teach us here today. Well, it is, it, 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 and and there's some great infrastructure out there. I, I can give a, a shout out to uh, the CIT model, uh, crisis intervention team model, uh, also called the Memphis model, and, and Memphis Police Department developed this years ago, and it, it was to try to give some basic de-escalation, basic mental health awareness training to those line patrol officers who are uh, um, working on that. So we actually partnered up with the Idaho Department of Health and Welfare, and, and we would give quarterly iterations of this training to law enforcement officers throughout the region. So most of them had some basic training on how to handle these encounters, and they were well aware of us as a resource to to uh, to bring people to. The other thing we did is we had a great relationship with the local mental health drug court, and we were actually baked into their curriculum. So if you were in that judicial diversion program, part of one of the requirements for you to complete that program and to successfully graduate, if you will, was you were required to come to the crisis center for an orientation. And what we would do is we wanted to demystify the place, tell you, here's here's what it looks like, and here's where to come to us. And, and we wanted that to be a safe refuge. So now you have somebody who's in this judicial diversion program who maybe is thinking about using again or is in some kind of anxiety crisis, uh, rather than running the risk of having them reoffend and have a bad encounter with law enforcement, they were directed to come to us and and we had great success with that subpopulation. I mean, for many people um, taking care of patients in healthcare, the go-to, let's calm them down approach is a chemical. It's a substance, you know, to calm them down. And sometimes the substance can actually make things worse. You take someone who's teetering on the edge of reality and they feel like they're losing their grip on reality and they're not knocked out. They're not entirely sedated. I know one of the things that you told me as we were talking beforehand involved the skill set you accrued when you're a hostage negotiator, which is how do you build rapport? Um, mm-hmm. If someone has a um, is in the middle of a floored psychotic attack, let's say that they have a unhealthy amount of PCP in their system, and they're seeing um, someone in the background who looks green and has horns coming out of their head. And let's assume for the for this conversation that the person is not green and does not have horns out of their head. But the but the uh, the patient is frightened. They're scared and has created this hellacious feedback loop where the fear is creating more fear, creating more fear. And this is a big person potentially becoming agitated and, and violent. 
your comment to me was you don't start delving into the questions about the greenness or how big are the horns. You tap into the emotion, and that's the common theme. So let's let's uh, let's divert in that direction mm -hmm. and talk to us what that means to be able to make that type of connection, how to build rapport, how to build trust, and how that principle is nearly universal and can work in so many different circumstances. And what you learned in law enforcement translates very nicely into healthcare. Yeah, it, no, it's a, it, it's a foundational concept, it, this concept of universality of emotions, right? Experiences are unique to that individual, uh, but 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 emotions are are are, are common. Uh, emotions are universal. That that example of the the green monster. I'm not going to enter his delusion, and I am not going to talk to him. Oh, does it have three horns or two horns? I'm, I, I, because well, how many I, horns did it really have? Come on. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay. uh, ultimately, uh, even in the grips of that psychosis or the grips of that delusion, I am not going to be perceived as credible. And and right. my comments about what does the monster look like or all of that are, are, are going to be patronizing and really serve no purpose. But what is his reaction to the delusion? And and he's scared. I can Fear. talk about exactly. being scared all day long. I, I, I right. we've, and that and that goes back to that concept of universality of emotions is is that's how we make that connection, because the ultimate goal in any negotiation, whether it's it's suicide intervention, whether it is a sales negotiation, is I want to build rapport. I want to be perceived as trustworthy and worthy of listening to, because once I get to that point, I am then going to try to pull some behavioral levers here to influence behavior change. And whether that behavior change is upselling me on the features on the new car that I really don't <laughs> need, or... <laughs> you know, put down the knife and let the hostage go, I am trying to influence some kind of behavior change. And the only way I'm going to do that is if I am perceived as trustworthy. And so by building, and so as you build trust, sometimes you want to, well, you definitely want to be perceived as a man of your word. So um, as you are, you're asking to give and get, you know, I mean, it's unusual where you would be interacting with a hostage and say, uh, put down the gun, get into the car, and we'll go away, and everything will be safe. It's a process. I mean, it would be great if it worked out that way, but my guess is if it were that easy, you probably never would have had a job. Um, right. So it requires a great deal of patience, um, and I'm sure there are setbacks, uh, potential setbacks along the way, hopefully no permanent setbacks, but in terms of building trust, building rapport, you have to be perceived as being able to deliver on your word. So Help, yeah, talk to us a little bit about that in terms of the back and forth negotiation process. And if, if it makes sense, you can talk about it with the floridly psychotic patient that you're mm -hmm. trying to verbally de-escalate, calm down, and not pose a threat to his immediate environment. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you, you've got to always address that emotional component, but you also need to set and maintain your good clinical boundaries. You cannot promise something that you're not going to deliver. And and at some point, you you know you you have these red lines. No, we're not going to let you go. No, we're not. Uh, there, there are things we're not going to do. Let's focus on what we're going to do. It's all about redirection and 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 lowering expectations. And 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 one of the things that we say. Um, uh, whether it's in law enforcement crisis negotiation, uh, but w when we were talking about our staff at the crisis center, we always told them the passage of time 
is your number one clinical tool. You know, we can invest the time because the passage of time is going to lower expectations. It's going to allow us to bleed off that emotional component. Mm -hmm. um, and, 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 and that's what we need. So we've got to invest the time. Uh, that's part of the solution. Plus, you can only imagine that over time people get sleepy. Now, not every right. patient gets sleepy, but um, but people get exhausted. I mean, um, everybody, everybody listening to this has has been angry at one point mm -hmm. in time and has probably lost it. Um, but nobody, very few people are able to maintain that sense of anger over a prolonged period of time. It it generally does tend to bleed off. And, and for many of us, having that blow up tends to be therapeutic. I mean, it tends to let off the steam. Um, but it is important to, that you ultimately, you want to make sure that any steam that gets let, uh, let off doesn't turn into a violent, encounter particularly in the workplace so let's right. talk a little bit about workplace violence because i know that mm -hmm. was part of your mission and in just by looking at the news recently there were two very high profile incidents one was a mass shooting i don't know how many people were injured hurt or even killed that took place in minnesota there was another one in austin texas where one physician with a terminal illness walked into a pediatrician's office, took some hostages and ultimately killed another pediatrician, their only encounter having been two weeks before when the doctor with the terminal illness was looking for a job and was politely told, we don't really have a position. And how and why he came back, nobody knows. But what we do know is that there were at least two dead bodies there. Now, those are the high profile workplace violent events we can all agree that that's a horrible outcome but that's probably the tip of the iceberg there are probably many more common events that create a great deal of systemic uh, problem in terms of burnout frustration people not liking to go to work any any longer they don't feel they're appreciated they don't feel as if anybody's paying attention to them and you end up getting a bleed off of people who have 10, 15, 20, 30 years of experience deciding to do something else. I mean, this is a major drain on the system because it, at least in my mind, I don't know how you replace someone with 30 years of experience. You certainly don't replace that individual, you know, with a fresh graduate. That makes no sense to me whatsoever. So th these are really important issues in healthcare settings and how to get a handle on it so that if a, if a person goes to work, they can at least, I mean, among all the other headaches, they can at least feel safe. Right. And it's a huge issue. And, and, and um, really, we've got a, and maybe to frame it, I've got some numbers here. Uh, we all know workplace violence is, is, is a problem, right? Uh, the headlines tell us that. But uh, there was an interesting study done at uh, Oxford, uh, uh, Oxford Analytica, I think was the name of the company, but they, they looked at workplace violence events. And your average out-of-court settlement for an actual workplace violence event is running about $500,000. Um, your average jury award is about $3 million. So sizable sums. Yeah, and then um, you get people who, um, who have been on the receiving end or people who have witnessed it to say they don't need to be around that. And we talked briefly about how some of these things escalate um, and having the proper skill set to de-escalate mm -hmm. would help. So, and, and 
bring us into the statistical world. You had some guidance on many patients who come in um, who may who may be comfortable living at home. Perhaps they're elderly, living mm-hmm. by themselves with a family member, and okay, I mean, getting by. Then all of a sudden, something mm-hmm. something happens. Um, they the patient becomes delusional or maybe become violent. They don't know where they are. Get taken to the emergency room, and the default assumption, the facile conclusion, is that hey, look, they're old. This is what happens to elderly people, and they just give them a shot of uh, Risperdal or some other antipsychotic. Patient snoozes it off and then goes home, but the problem's not solved. I think one of the points that you made in our pre-discussion is that for the elderly person who's at home, yes, they may very well be elderly, but there may be something else going on that is entirely and completely reversible and doesn't require the deepest of dives to find it, particularly um, sepsis or urinary tract infection, things that are common in older, elderly people but aren't properly treated with Risperdal as an antipsychotic. Right. Yeah. And and so uh, this came about uh, uh, through kind of a collateral assignment I had. So once we had the crisis center up and running, um, we started looking at violence within the hospital. And this comes to this definition of workplace violence. And, and, and what I'd like to do here today is, is introduce a new term. Um, mm-hmm. We are using the term clinical violence. And that term originally appeared in, in a couple of uh, international medical journals about a year ago. And, and what we mean by clinical violence, that is violence directed at healthcare workers by patients or visitors. And uh, you may ask, well, gee, Don, how's that different than workplace violence? Workplace violence is such a broad, encompassing definition. We have things in there, bullying, staff-on-staff violence, mm-hmm. uh, uh, active shooter, all of these other events. And and when you look at um, all the OSHA background, all the OSHA statistics, um, uh, violence against healthcare workers is a hidden epidemic. Um, depending on which study you look at, it's underreported by a factor of about 70%. We did our own internal study and, and found some fascinating uh, reasons why that is. We, first of all, we confirmed that number and, and really dro- um, dug down into, into the reasons why people don't report uh, violence. And, and very interesting. So um, we want to introduce this term clinical violence. And if I could make the, uh, I guess, analogy to uh, uh, domestic violence. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was an all-encompassing term for a long time. And if you've noticed in the literature and in the dialogue, we're now referring to something called intimate partner violence, hmm. which is a subset of domestic violence. And, and that comes out of uh, research and studies that show, uh, they refer to it as the intimacy effect. Um, and that means that where, where there is an intimate relationship, the propensity for violence, the risk for violence is much higher. We're having the same thought by introducing this term clinical violence. It, it, it puts a spotlight on this epidemic of violence against healthcare workers, which ties into a number of issues, as you already touched on, retention, touches on quality of care. Mm -hmm. If I don't feel safe in the workplace, is that going to impact the quality of care I provide to my patient? So we really want to promote this uh, use of this term clinical violence. There's a there's an old cliche in the therapy world that says if you can name it, you can tame it. Mm -hmm. And we feel by giving this name 
to clinical violence, we're going to highlight this. You, you see the dialogue. A joint commission put out a sentinel event alert back in 2019 on violence against healthcare workers. The major nursing unions are, 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 are highlighting this issue. Um, I'm not sure if you're familiar with American Nurses Credentialing Center has the magnet designation for hospitals. It's a very sought after designation um, um, for hospitals around the nation. Part of that magnet certification process is you need to articulate what you're doing to prevent violence against your own staff. So th this issue is becoming uh, openly talked about. There, there's federal legislation proposed to tighten OSHA regulations uh, and, and require healthcare organizations to do more. So I really think by calling it clinical violence, we're, we bring some focus onto the issue. Before we end, don't forget to reach out to MR Insurance Consultants, where their goal is to assist physicians in obtaining the most comprehensive coverage available to fit their unique situations. Reach out for both excellent and quality service at drpodcastnetwork.com slash insurance. And with that, we're at the end of our broadcast. Thanks for joining us. In closing, a few messages. If you're an existing member of medical or dental justice and you find yourself on the receiving end of a medical legal threat, please contact us at 1-877-MEDJUST. That's 1-877-MEDJUST or 633-5878. Our STAT hotline is a service offered to all current members. It's designed to get your urgent medical legal questions answered ASAP. Members can also access a plethora of exclusive medical legal resources by logging into their members-only page, which can be accessed by our website, medicaljustice.com. Now, we want to protect as many doctors as possible. If one of your colleagues is in trouble, please refer him. When a current member of medical justice refers a colleague and that colleague becomes a member, you both receive a month of free protection. To refer a colleague, write to us at infonews, that's I-N, Epizen Frank O, news, at medicaljustice.com. That's infonews at medicaljustice.com. Now, if you're not an existing member of medical or dental justice, but want to bulletproof your practice from medical legal threats, our admin, Wendy Cates, is your best resource for information about our protection plans, implementation best practices, and pricing models. Wendy can be reached directly at 336-358-5587. We offer discounts for large groups and protect doctors of all specialties in all states. Now, before we close, one last request. If you enjoyed this episode, please write a review on your preferred podcast provider and share our podcast with your colleagues. Reviews help maintain our podcast visibility which in turn helps us reach a broader audience. This helps us protect more doctors. Thank you for joining us this week. We hope you'll join us on the next episode of the Medical Liability Minute.